0: That's Wise W-I-S-E.com. Wise.com. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latinx culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month
1: All of the things that actually animate our lives, as you say, you know, financial power, cultural power, the power of human relationships, all of those things kind of get leached out of the neoliberal view, which is why I think ultimately it fails.
2: Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. So one of the things about the moment in which Joe Biden is taking office is that for all that Joe Biden is a known quantity, the ideological moment in which he is becoming president is not really a known quantity. This is a moment of change. It is a moment when boundaries on what people thought were possible a couple years ago have fallen one after the other after the other. Joe Biden's primary competition in the Democratic Party was an independent socialist, a Democratic socialist from Vermont. Um, he was running against Donald Trump. It's a wild moment in politics for a fairly conventional politician to come in on. But that also means that there is a real question about what kind of president Joe Biden will be. Other, other people have observed, I've observed, that Biden is a politician in the deep sense. He tries to figure out what the center of the country is, what the center of his own party is, and tack to it. And that center is changing. But we talk more about the way Biden follows the center than the way the center is changing. And so that's what I wanted today's episode to be about. Felicia Wong is a leader of the Roosevelt Institute, which is a progressive think tank that's been doing, in my view, some of the best work in recent years on the way the ideological firmament underneath not only progressivism, but politics in general is changing. And and the big point they've been making is that there have been a set of governing assumptions that's structured, both conservative and progressive policymaking, something that broadly get termed neoliberalism. We sort of define what that means in this show. But that is devolving now on both the right and the left into something different and trying to trace what that is, is tricky because it's emergent and it hasn't quite come into its own yet. But Roosevelt has been doing a fascinating job on this and particularly on the progressive side have been looking at the different tributaries running into what they call the new progressivism. I've been trying to understand the different factions looking at it and then. Something we talk about here, which parts of this new ideology can be done by a president who is likely going to be presiding over divided government and which can't? Because obviously what ends up giving us governance is a collision between ideology and political structure. And Joe Biden is not going to have the most enabling political structure that a president might want. So it's putting those two things together that is really going to produce his presidency and trying to understand what they are is work Roosevelt has been doing and work that we do in this show. As always, email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Felicia Wong. Felicia Wong, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Ezra.
2: So your thesis is that we're in this transitionary moment between worldviews. And so I want to begin with the worldview we were in, which is broadly, I think, understood as neoliberalism. And you define the governing assumption of that as this idea that greater reliance on markets would bring both economic and political freedom. And that assumption ended up structuring not just conservative policymaking, but in important ways, progressive policymaking. Tell me a bit about that.
1: Neoliberalism really is this shared belief that, as you say, had a lot of power in both parties and actually amongst casino sort of everyday Americans from the mid 1970s onward. And it really said that if our companies are strong and if they focus on their own profits, they will create a world of jobs and prosperity. And they would create a world where, you know, workers would see higher wages. It it even said that it would create a world in which racial segregation would compete itself away. That's sort of my favorite part of neoliberalism. Uh, And it also said that the role of governments, therefore, is to kind of structure markets very lightly, if or not at all, so that they kind of let business do their own thing. Now, that idea sounds pretty weird, actually, in 2020 which actually tells you that we're already on this cusp of leaving the post-neoliberal world, the idea that government should do very little and business should sort of rule the day. But it's important to remember that many people for the last 40 or 50 years, both Democrats and Republicans, really said this in all earnestness. You know, I believe That Milton Friedman meant what he said in 1970, that the social responsibility of business is to increase profits. I think he meant it. Now, whether that was really correct, even at the time, is an argument that we can have, that many people have. But I think what's really clear today in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of record economic inequality, it's really clear that this worldview is no longer credible, just doesn't work.
2: What makes you say that that it's no longer credible or or what is a proof that people believe it's no longer credible?
1: Well, I think it's important to think about whether neoliberalism succeeds or fails on its own terms. You know, neoliberalism was supposed to create more jobs for more people at relatively higher wages. And so you would see uh, the wage distribution compressed and you'd see less inequality. That clearly hasn't happened. Neoliberalism was supposed to sort of help us end the business cycle and create a kind of more stable economy. But clearly, that is not what we have seen. We saw the economic crisis of 2008 and 2009. We saw the very, very, very slow recovery from the Great Recession. We saw great instability before that in Asia, in Europe. So we've just seen more and more economic crises which i think can be attributed to the to the kind of prioritization of the financial sector that neoliberalism allowed so neoliberalism really has not brought more equality it's not brought more stability it was also supposed to bring growth you know good old gdp growth nice measure of how well we're doing but growth as measured very conventionally is actually more than a point lower between 1980 and today than it was between 1950 and 1980. So even on its own terms, neoliberalism has not been a success.
2: And so how do you know that's neoliberalism and not, say, globalization, expanding global labor competition or its technological change or its innovation becoming more difficult after mid-century electrification and the sort of post-World War II boom. Something you'll sometimes hear in this argument is that, yes, growth has slowed down. Yes, we've seen more inequality, but that's happening across a lot of different countries in a lot of different contexts with a lot of different governing regimes. And so there is something bigger and more structural going on that we can't attach to, to sort of any one ideological construct.
1: Well, I think all of those things, globalization obviously matters. Technological change obviously matters. Um, I don't think we should be so reductive as to say that those aren't also driving factors. But when you look at the ideas of neoliberalism and you look at the idea which allowed basically this incredibly financialized economy to grow, whereby we have more and more companies making money from making money than making money from providing real goods and services. And when you have that kind of economy that does not throw off middle wage jobs, I mean, I do think you have to be able to attribute that to the way in which we structure our economy and the way in which we think our economy should be working best.
2: So, one thing that I'll just add in here, one thing that I find very convincing in, in in this idea that we're in a transitionary worldview moment is if I go back to you know fifteen years ago, you know when I'm a little bit earlier in covering politics, and I look at the leading members of both parties, they both agree. They all agree that markets are fundamentally good and they're fundamentally powerful. and it is simply about how you use them. You know, and so conservatives want to do different things with the markets and and, and progressives, you know, or, or at least Democrats want to use them for more democratic ends and do a bit more redistribution. And now if I look at a lot of the leading members of actually both parties, so not just Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and AOC and and, and others on the Democratic side, but if I look at Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio and the rhetoric, if not the the actual activities of of, of Donald Trump and Tom Cotton, I actually see a lot more market skepticism. And so, the, so there's a, a more starting assumption that markets are failing. And the the issue is, what do you begin to build or what do you begin to do around that failure? How does a, either the government come back in or cultural institutions come back in? But but something has to be built out of failure. And I don't think this is always well developed, particularly on the right, where there's a lot more rhetoric than I would say there is policy. But but this is where I think your attention to this underlying assumption is really helpful. That something has changed in a pretty deep way in the assumptions that policy makers and particularly like leading ambitious politicians are are beginning with when they start their rhetoric, when they write their speeches, when they when they try to get noticed as attending to the current moment. And it's really it's not just on the left. It is actually on the right enough to say that even if the policies haven't changed that much on the right, something is cracking in the ideological firmament.
1: Well, I think that's right. You know, I don't want to be too unfair to neoliberal economists. I think Friedman and Hayek and others uh, certainly recognized that you know, markets could fail, but they thought that failure would be sort of on the margins. They thought that failure would be sort of small. And, you know, some of them did recognize that it's it's some and, and certainly, you know, Democratic politicians who who were still neoliberal, but who recognized the possibility that markets weren't going to do everything. You know, they thought that, okay, the role of government was to pick up where you know, sort of markets were going to fail. So it was kind of a last mile problem. So sure, you should have some kind of unemployment insurance, but it should be time limited and it should be uh, because ultimately the market was going to provide jobs. Right. And so I think the neoliberals, many neoliberals certainly recognize the possibility of market failure. The question was how profoundly were markets going to fail. One thing neoliberals certainly didn't foresee was the way in which climate change was going to be driven by a primarily privatized uh, market systems. Just one example. It was an externality that they just didn't give a lot of thought to. And today, obviously, it's one of the largest problems facing humanity. So I do think you're right that more and more politicians, more and more public figures on the right as well as the the left, recognize the problems with a kind of market fundamentalist or a market primacy approach. And, you know, I think it's one of the things that you have to give Donald Trump at least some rhetorical credit for and actually some political credit for he ran in 2016 on the idea that people were forgotten and they were forgotten by markets and they were forgotten also by politicians who were going to continue to prioritize markets. Now, of course, everything that Trump did subsequently showed how disingenuous that basic argument was on his part. He used it for political ends. He didn't really he he, he did nothing to try to actually address those kinds of market failures in fact he supercharged them but i think you're absolutely right when you talk about politicians across the aisle recognizing that something is wrong with the worldview, frankly in which they grew up
2: i think my favorite donald trump line ever in terms of like actually insightful lines was in 2016 he said at some rally he said i am so greedy I have been greedy my entire life, and now I want to be greedy on behalf of the American people. The thing that was so great about that line and about certain ways that he ran in 2016 was he basically began from the standpoint that both capitalism and politics are corrupt. And his argument was that he was a master of that kind of corruption, that he understood how to wield power. He had the meanest lawyers. He like had bought all the politicians, that he understood how to wield that power. And he would now wield it on on, on behalf of you, the forgotten, usually white public. And and I think this gets to something important about the way this is changing, something that, that you talk about in that report, which is that we're not moving exactly from a Primacy of markets ideologically to a primacy of like anti-market ideology. Markets are are still a toolkit, frankly, in in, in both parties' policymaking, and, and I would say as well they should be. Markets remain very powerful, and if you listen to somebody like Elizabeth Warren, like she will like cite you chapter and verse on that. What seems to be happening to me is much more of a recognition. No matter what you're talking about, be it markets or government, power is a key thing, and markets politics, almost everything is downstream of different sorts of power. And so if you go into what's happening on the left, I think there's more of an attention uh, in, in some parts of the left to class power, to, to to billionaire power, than in other parts um, to racial power, to white supremacy as a power. If you look at the right, there is now an attention to and, and, and an emphasis on Cultural power and this idea of like hegemonic woke liberalism as like the key defining power. But there's much more of a belief that power is structuring all of these things. And so the question is, how do you alter or control that power than I think there there was 20 or 30 years ago, or that economists are good at talking about and had like well described in their models, you know, 15 or 20 years ago.
1: Fundamentally, one of neoliberalism's biggest blind spots. Certainly one's race, which I'm more than happy to talk about. But the other blind spot was the blind spot of power. I mean, neoliberals really wanted to substitute the idea of choice for the idea of politics, right? They didn't like the Politics is messy. Politics is hard. Building political coalitions... uh, persuading people, all of that is difficult humanly, and also it's really difficult to model, right? So they just wanted to substitute the idea of choice, public choice theory is what they called it, for the idea of politics. And, you know, that just doesn't work because it means that all of the things that actually animate our lives, as you say, you know, financial power, cultural power, the power of human relationships, all of those things kind of get leached out of the neoliberal view, which is why I think ultimately it failed. That's that's one of the reasons I think that it failed. Now, the question, which I try to address in that report, is, well, what comes next? And you're absolutely right. It's not markets versus anti-markets. I think we fundamentally misunderstand the range of neoliberalism's critics and the range of new economic thinkers, if we just say, well, they must be sort of anti-capitalist or anti-market. You know, what I try to do, what we at Roosevelt try to do, is to uh, say that there are at least three different categories of thinkers who are trying to put forward a kind of new, a set of new economic ideas. And by the way, there's a lot of overlap in them, as with all good categories, all good heuristics. But I think it's helpful to try to disaggregate them. The first is the new structuralists, right? These are the kinds of thinkers and politicians who focus on government's role in setting guardrails and rules for the market. You mentioned Elizabeth Warren. It's helpful to think of sort of avatars for some of these new ways of thinking. Elizabeth Warren is the avatar of the new structuralist. She always talks about government as You know, good because it's cops on the beat who are going to make sure that markets work well and that companies stay in line. So that's category one. Category two are, we call them the public providers. These are people who focus on increased state action, providing more public goods, especially for essential things, essential rights, human rights is what uh, the public providers would call them, things like housing and healthcare where the market simply fails. It simply fails to provide universally and it simply fails to provide in a way that's egalitarian. And so the obvious avatar for these public providers is Bernie Sanders, right? And the third category that I think is in some ways the most interesting and the most exciting is this category of economic transformer. Right. These are thinkers who focus on deploying the power of government to catalyze large scale economic change. Government can actually help invest to create good jobs, to create new industries. The obvious way to think about this is that government can invest in new markets to help decarbonize the economy. I know you've had Mariana Mazzucato on your show before, and she's definitely uh, one of the leading thinkers in this kind of economic transformer's vision. And what's really interesting about this, Ezra, is that I think the avatar of the economic transformer, and this is super surprising, is Joe Biden. <laughs> he moved from the primary to the general on his uh, climate change plan, he Build Back Better has $2 trillion worth of money that would go to funding a decarbonized economy. Build Back Better promises that 40% of that money would go to frontline communities, Black, Brown communities that are dependent on fossil fuels. So those might well be white rural communities. But this is a promise that Joe Biden campaigned on. This is the thing that is most energetic in his economic vision. So maybe it's too much to say that he's like the avatar of the economic transformers. But I do think that Joe Biden, of all our current popular political figures, does represent this idea that the government can invest in... Industries invest in new sectors of the economy to lead our economy in a healthy, egalitarian, anti-racist. Uh, that that one's mine. Uh, and, and 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 green direction.
2: And, and so, I, I really want to come. I'm going to come right back to this idea of Joe Biden's economic transformer because I was wondering who you're going to use there. And and my, the people in my head were either Jay Inslee or, or potentially AOC. Um, but I do want to uh, name the, the fourth category you have in the report, um, which is also the category that I tend to put myself in, which is economic democratists, um, folks focused on, on building democratic institutions to ensure that government is up to the tasks identified above. And, and I might put Stacey Abrams probably as, as the avatar of that. One thing that struck me, I found this typology incredibly helpful and correct. And as I was thinking about it, practically right now, not knowing who's going to win the, the Georgia Senate runoffs, but that particularly in a world where Democrats don't take both of those seats, so you still have a Mitch McConnell-run Senate, one of the questions I had looking at this is put aside which category you, your, you put yourself in or care the most about. There's a question of which categories can be done or, or can have the most progress made in them without major legislation. And there, I think it's very clearly the new structuralists and the economic transformers, where there's a huge amount of rule setting power, market structuring power that is already embedded in executive agencies. And then both through some amount of rule setting power and you know trade power, but also through government procurement, uh, different kinds of investment, how the defense department sets its spending priorities, et cetera, you can actually do a lot to signal changes in the economy and like what is going to be valued versus what is not going to be valued going forward. And so I was hoping to, to hear you talk a bit about that because Roosevelt has done tremendous work on executive authority and what is possible within the rules. So first, does that sound right to you? Does Do those seem to you like categories that progress can be made on even in the absence of Congress?
1: Yeah, I agree that the sort of the new structuralists are the people who are most likely to make progress in a world of kind of legislative gridlock. You're absolutely right. In many ways, not knowing what's going to happen in Georgia, not knowing what the Senate will really look like, but assuming that regardless, you know, the Senate's going to be very finely divided, even if the Democrats have 50 seats come late January. I think that The public providers, people who would really like to see a very robust Medicare for all that obviously requires legislation. And I also think that a lot of the economic transformer work, especially the part of economic transformation that says that you need to spend multi trillions of dollars to sort of seed new battery technology, uh, massive. EV charging stations for electric cars, et cetera, et cetera. You know, all of that actually does require a significant amount of funding that's going to be extremely difficult without legislation. Whereas some of the new structuralist ideas, the ideas is that, wow, better corporate governance, right? Rules from the federal government that say that Companies can't buy back their own stocks simply to increase the stock prices and therefore pay higher compensation to their executives. That used to be illegal. The government could make that illegal again. And so those kinds of rules are much more available to a Biden administration. And perhaps one of the great ironies of 2020 is that, you know, Joe Biden did, in fact, handily win the presidency. And yet, in many ways, we do live, we will be living in an Elizabeth Warren world. So how all this plays out will be pretty fascinating. But I also wanted to come back to your idea of the economic democratists. I didn't leave them out on purpose. I actually was going to pause and talk about them subsequently, because I think and this is where I really agree with you, Ezra, I think this question of whether or not the economy is structured in a way to allow true public participation, that is the most important question for any of these categories, right? Whether or not you're a new structuralist or whether or not you believe that government should be providing a lot more to a lot more people or whether you believe that the government should be setting the North Star for, you know, our green future. None of this is going to happen well unless people trust the way government works, unless people are allowed to obviously vote in ways where their vote is not stolen, where where they don't question uh, the vote. But also, I think about economic democracy as also... having to do with workplace democracy. People need a say in, you know, the way their lives play out at work. And so I would actually put labor unions also, increased labor organizing, increased labor union participation, and people being able to organize even outside of very large industrial factories, but having domestic workers, for example, be able to organize. All of that, I think, also is about voice and agency. And I put all of that emphasis also into the category of economic democratists. My point being that none of these sort of new ways of thinking about structuring the economy are going to work unless our political structures work to support them.
2: Yeah, I think it's a, a key way of looking at that. And, and I really, by the way, agree something that I've explored on the show a uh, uh, quite a bit over the past years is I. Need to have a thicker idea of democracy, right? An idea of democracy that isn't simply people get to vote, but that begins to think about democracy as a question of what amount of voice do people have, what kind of power do they have. Something that that Roosevelt has been resuscitating is one of my favorite ideas in all of the sort of economic power literature, which is John Kenneth Galbraith's idea of countervailing powers. And, and I wanted to see if on, on that you would talk about that a bit because something that. Uh, Galbraith, I think it's very unjustly neglected, but that idea that there is going to be big power throughout the economy, and so you're going to need powers that represent workers and powers that represent people, as well as powers that represent capital, and that one side of that has simply become attenuated and withered is still, to me, one of the most relevant ways of thinking about our political economy that we have.
1: What's important about thinking about countervailing powers is that It's not just the power of individuals. Uh, I think that then devolves into that neoliberal idea of choice, right? You actually need to build institutions that are going to carry that power. That's all a company is, after all. It's a set of organized norms, rules, processes such that you can produce goods and services. That's what a company is. It's an institution. That's what government is uh, when government is robust and works well. Government is a set of institutions that's able to be a countervailing power vis-a-vis large and powerful corporations. And then I I do think it's important since we spend so much time on the job, since work is so much a part of our lives, uh, both economic, social, psychological, people do need to be able to have uh, ways institutionally to collectively act at the workplace. And that is what labor unions really are. You know, the big question there is whether or not, again, as we, as our economy is increasingly uh, service-driven, not manufacturing-driven, you know, are we going to be able to upgrade our labor laws to take into account the ways in which people often women, often immigrants, often Black people, ways in which people work in service jobs or they work in homes, right? That's why we need to see an upgraded labor law that's going to be able to help those folks have voice on the job and and agency also. So there's lots of other ways to think about economic agency. I think about some of the the experiments with participatory budgeting, for example, this idea that people should be able on a city by city or neighborhood by neighborhood basis to make some decisions about how their budgets are structured and how their budgets are allocated. That too is another kind of thick democracy idea that I think we should be experimenting more about. I'm really interested in ideas of economic collectives and cooperatives. So there are lots of things that Again, kind uh, lots of ideas about how to structure our economy that have kind of been lost or forgotten or leached out in the neoliberal era that I already see people experimenting with. and it, I'd love to see uh, be brought back in some much more fulsome way.
2: or Kleinjo will be back
3: after a short break. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. shopify.com/ box
0: wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com.
2: If you go back a couple months ago, looking at the polls on the Senate and, and, and looking at where a lot of the forecasts put the election ending up, I thought there was a real opportunity to do political Democratic reform, right? Not the whole necessary thick democracy we're talking about here with economic democratization, but there's a real possibility of getting rid of the filibuster, a real possibility of passing something that would begin to deal with gerrymandering and you know some of the some of the money flooding through politics. There's a real a, a real moment where we would not become by any means a, a majoritarian democracy, but we'd become something closer to a system where parties could win power and then, and then govern uh, reasonably effectively. And I think of this part of it as like threshold. There are all these really important ideological debates to have, right? You know, there are people listening to this who are much more within the, the, the neoliberal vein. There are times when I'm there. But the left neoliberals and the, the democratic socialists have really productive debates to have with each other that don't matter because nobody can get power to actually govern in in an ambitious way except for the relatively limited spaces in which you can do rulemaking authority. And similarly, the right populace can't govern. I mean, almost there is a way in which the American political system has taken what should be a very riotous and healthy ideological debate about the right direction forward and made it a kind of cosplay, a kind of LARPing of politics. Because almost no matter who wins, they're not going to be able to accomplish anything close to their agenda. And I think that's really unhealthy. I think it is unhealthy to have healthy ideological debates that never create policy resolution that can then be judged. Which is why, in some cases, I often like cut out the political democratization side of it and, and wish people would unite around that. Because With very few exceptions, maybe the exception of actual capital itself, which tends to have a preference for the status quo. But but otherwise, almost anybody who has an ambitious ideological agenda right now is stymied and like in order for these debates between, you know, I don't know third way and Jacobin to, to really be as meaningful as people want them to be. Uh, like there has to be like some change in the American political system where parties, including right wing parties, can 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 win power and govern. And you know, as you said, even if Democrats win those Georgia Senate runoffs, and so they have, you know, what I would call a 48 seat Democratic majority, plus like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, we're really going to be operating in a, a in a very constrained world at a time when our problems are much bigger than those constraints. And that's one of the hardest things for me in covering this stuff, this knowledge that we can cover the ideas that there are solutions that are, I don't know if they will work, but they are of scale to our problems. But I can never tell anybody with a straight face that I think that we will be able to test them because like that is not how we are structured as a, as a governance operation.
1: Yeah, you know... Um... <laughs> Uh, it's kind of hard to come back from that one I will I will say Sorry about that, that. Uh, no 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 it's real uh look there were some obviously really great successes that came out of the 2020 election. I don't think anybody ought to take lightly the idea that you know the American people through democratic means and against all odds ousted a, a leader whose tendencies, skewed towards the authoritarian like that is that is that is something no one should take lightly right on the one hand on the other hand and i've got a couple great heartbreaks that came out of 2020 but perhaps the the greatest and maybe one of the longest lasting is that the democratic reform agenda that you refer to you know being able to deal with the filibuster, maybe the electoral college, maybe the chokehold of the way the Supreme Court is currently structured, maybe the revolving door problem around the fact that, you know, some extraordinarily significant percentage of our public servants then just go on to lobby and so continue to create a vice-like grip of private power on our government so that you can't legitimately talk about and really believe in this idea of a government for public good. I mean, that is like a a self-abnegating system, right? And so that was a big agenda for many of us that we had hoped to be able to uh, prioritize going into 2021. Many of the debates on the left were like, just how big, like HR one plus, HR one plus, 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 you know, like that was the big debate. And I, it's heartbreaking that we're not going to see that. I don't think we're going to see that certainly for at least two years. I hope our democracy, even if diminished, is able to survive that. I think we can survive it, but I don't think we should have to survive it for very much longer because these are just this is a system that's basically eating itself alive.
2: Joe Biden operates in between these two things. There is a part of him that is a very conventional by the book politician and who doesn't want to push on authority, who doesn't want to break the boundaries of politics, who really wants it to work in the way it worked 30 years ago. And then there's a part of him that has embraced a much broader ideological vision um, and he has always been just much more mistrustful of the economists. I mean, one of the ways Joe Biden is not like he's not like a coolly technocratic wonk. And like I've always heard from the economists who've worked with him that he's just as more skeptical of their models and their ideas. And just like he p- believes in an economy just more built on values and kind of doesn't want to hear some of the reasons that you can't do that. And that's going to be a, an interesting tension with him. Uh, you, you had a piece in the report where you talked about one of the threats to the emerging progressive worldview being the desire to just return to normalcy. And it almost read sometimes there, like you were describing a possible Biden administration, this came out before, just the idea that getting rid of Trump is enough. And then there's going to be a pull for things to feel conventional, stable, non-conflict oriented, you know, get a couple small deals with Republicans. You can show the system is working again. And that the only alternative, particularly in a world where Democrats don't take the Senate is going to be a level of aggression through executive actions that will make people like Joe Biden feel very uncomfortable. But if you're going to be showing you're making real progress on things, you're going to have to do that. And so I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that tension between, you know, the, the desire to return to normalcy and the desire to maximize the authority you do have for structural um, rules and, and and at least pointing towards transformation.
1: I think Joe Bi one of Joe Biden's greatest superpowers is that anything he says sounds moderate
2: <laughs> It's the Andrew Yang line. <laughs> I
1: mean, it's like. Just like anything Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or AOC say sound, you know, radical. Anything if you listen to a lot of what AOC says, it's like very sensible. But when she says it, somehow it kind of reads as like radical. I say that regardless of whether one agrees with her or not. That's it's just it's kind of an interesting kind of psychological phenomenon. And on on the other hand, anything Joe Biden says, sounds moderate. And so what has been so fascinating about watching Biden over the course of the last year go from the primary to the general is, you know, he has embraced so much that is really transformative, right? His tax policy, you know, is it's not as kind of catchy as Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax, but he's talking about raising $3.5 trillion over 10 years, basically by taxing the rich and taxing corporations. He doesn't get a lot of flack for it, because he says, and it sounds so common sense. But I mean, I think that's pretty remarkable. Similarly, I think his climate policy really is quite transformative in that he talks about $2 trillion, you know, spent over less, you know, four years to sort of seed, uh, he won't call it a Green New Deal, but many people on the Green New Deal side of things would call it a Green New Deal. But at any rate, my real point about Joe Biden, and maybe this is like the superpower underneath his superpower, is that he is a politician. He is a politician who maybe he doesn't agree with the economist models, uh, but he sure listens to people and tries very hard to incorporate what they are saying into what he is arguing for on their behalf. And so I just think it is very, very interesting that it is Biden's political nature so often we sort of disdain politics and politicians these days but i think it is possibly the fact that biden is a politician's politician that might help him be an effective leader out of some of this mess now that means he's got to deliver of course right and that means he has to deliver in these very in these very constrained circumstances that you and i have been talking about very constrained circumstances legislatively, you know, having Republicans who've already basically announced that they're going to have their knives sharpened for any of his uh, agenda. So it's going to be tough. But I think, uh, you know, I'm not sad about having a president who's actually a politician.
2: The Ezra Klein Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors.
4: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact.
2: Let's go to where he actually could deliver. So a weird thing about American government is there are certain idiosyncratic areas where the president ends up having a lot of power because how an old bill is written, immigration is one of these areas. But quietly, student debt is one of these areas. So a, a debate has emerged about whether or not Biden should use executive authority to cancel huge amounts of student debt. Why does he have that authority? Why why can he like wipe out so much student debt even as he can't? you know, pass Medicare for all by fiat.
1: Part of this is because over 90 percent of all student debt is actually held by or mitigated by the federal government. So the president and by extension, the secretary of education actually has authority to cancel student debt, which is why you have seen over the last month, as it's become clear that legislative the legislative playing field is going to be highly circumscribed, that student debt cancellation has sort of risen in the public consciousness. Now, Roosevelt has been arguing for student debt cancellation for a very long time for a couple of reasons. One is that if you structure student debt relief properly, we would argue that you should see at least $50,000 per household uh, in student debt relief. That's significantly more than the Biden proposal right now, which is $10,000 per household. But if you really support having this higher level of uh, student debt relief, you know, this would represent just a massive wealth transfer For black and brown families in particular, that's incredibly important, right? Median wealth for black households overall, not just for borrowers, but for black households overall, would increase by something like 40% if you did this level level of debt forgiveness. So in one sense, student debt cancellation at this level is one way to very, I should say, relatively quickly kind of shrink some of these racial wealth gaps that are just crippling our society and crippling our economy.
2: Can I hold you on that for one second? Because something interesting there. So uh, people, if they've heard anything about this debate, have probably heard that there are, there's a debate about whether or not canceling student debt would be regressive. Right because student debt is held in higher quantities by people higher up the income scale to some degree. Um, But then something that often isn't mentioned, but it's in your papers, Matt Brunig has has made some very good points on this too, is that from the wealth perspective, that totally flips. If I'm remembering the numbers here correctly, something like the bottom 60% of the income distribution holds only like 40 some percent of student debt, but the bottom 20% of the wealth distribution holds more than 50% of all student debt. And so this income versus wealth look really, really changes the picture.
1: That's right. And I would also say that, you know, Black and brown households generally are much more burdened by student debt than white households. And so student debt forgiveness would disproportionately benefit people of color. Just one example is that 20 years after graduating, white households will have paid off 95% of their student debt. But 20 years after graduating, black households will still hold 95% of their student debt. Now, that's for a lot of reasons. I shouldn't say graduating, I should say leaving college, because many black Americans end up holding student debt, but not actually graduating. So they're in the worst of both worlds. They have debt, but they don't have the degree that would actually get them a marginally higher wage job. It's also because many Black households don't have other ways of, they don't have family wealth, so they can't pay down that debt using uh, using other means. And so, look, student debt cancellation is something that the president can do. It would significantly benefit Black and Brown families. And overall, 40 million Americans hold debt. So, this is something that would be very directly something that an administration could do, even in the face of legislative intransigence. So, that's one of the reasons you're seeing so much energy in this conversation right now. I think it's a really important one. It would help a lot of people, it would be direct. And I would say to the Biden team, if you're going to do this, uh, and this gets back to this question of like, you know, what are some of the lessons we've learned from in policymaking over the last 10 years? What can we learn from the Obama administration? What can we learn from the Trump administration? I would say this. If you're a politician and you're helping people, you better tell them that you're helping people. So if student debt cancellation does in fact happen at any kind of scale, um, I think that the federal government and in this case, it would be the Biden Harris administration I ought to take real credit for that.
2: I want to go through a couple of the debates people have on this because I think they're interesting. They're actually interesting in this worldview transition discussion we were having earlier. So, one is this idea that this would be unfair to do because, well, I paid off my student debt, you know, I being someone older or someone richer or something, or somebody who actually did just was burdened under student debt for 20 years um, and, you know, finally got it paid off. This idea that to help people with a mass cancellation now, when so many other people had to handle this problem and did or had to handle this problem and suffered, it would cause a Tea Party style political backlash. It would be unfair politics. It'd be Democrats helping the educated at the expense of of the less educated, because if you never went to college and never took on this debt burden, um, you don't get anything out of this policy. How do you how do you think about that argument?
1: You know, I don't think the moral hazard argument is a very good one, because let's go back to the fact that 40 percent of all people who hold student debt actually did not graduate from college, did not actually get that degree. So this gets back to the neoliberal idea. It was, in fact, a kind of neoliberal promise that if you invest in yourself, if you invest in your own skills, then you would enter a job market that would reward you for that kind of self-sacrifice. Take debt now, get paid off later, Uh, get paid out later that is just not happening for many 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 people who hold that so therefore i think that that the moral hazard argument is Significantly weakened, given where today's labor market really is. And then I would also say that again, this argument that it's going to disproportionately benefit white people and/or people who went to college—if you structure the forgiveness plan uh, properly—and there's a big debate right now about whether you should have an income cap, which would, uh, which for which you could then. Almost guarantee that you're benefiting lower middle and lower income Americans. Like, that's a very important set of questions. How do you structure the plan so that it benefits the people who need it the most? Big debate about that, as I said. And then the third thing I'd say is that. This is clearly not the only thing that we should be doing to put money back into people's pockets in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of, you know, generationally high unemployment. There are other things we should be doing. I think the reason we're talking about student debt so much right now is that this happens to be one of the most available policy remedies right now. Not that it should be the only one. It's really important. It's not the only one.
2: And I want to pull out something because this is where I think there's an interesting ideological question here. I don't think this kind of mass debt cancellation would have been even considered at the beginning of the Obama administration. I know people who are pushing for certainly more debt cancellation, Elizabeth Warren being being very much one of them during that administration and didn't get anywhere on it. And, and this seems to me to be related to some of the changing assumptions around markets, that... Do you see student debt as the market at work where people they fairly entered into contracts that usually end up benefiting them, even if it's burdensome and it's annoying? Um, or do you see it as a power problem where people were culturally, politically, financially pushed to take on the student loan debt? And then a lot of them ended up getting a raw deal to due to forces beyond their control. Like where you come down on that, I think really, really structures where you come down on on the on the ultimate policy here.
1: I think that's completely right, and it gets back to one of the things that you and I have now talked about on this podcast, but also, you know, since we started talking about these things generally, which is that I believe the new policymaking councils that policymakers and politicians have to fundamentally shift the ways in which they think about power in policymaking, period. I think too often democratic policymakers have defaulted to the least disruptive use of government power, right? Do things through a tax credit, do things through a nudge. uh, Maybe if we're going to be really radical, make the tax credit refundable, but do things that are least disruptive to the current structure. And I think that is just wrong because I think right now, given the multiple crises we are in, public health, racial, climate, economic. What we need to be counseling for is a use of government power that is intentionally disruptive, right? Eliminating student debt to some people looks like that, but you're really disrupting. And in fact, first of all, you'd be helping 40 billion people, as I said, but also you'd be showing the ways in which, you know, the current system did not keep up its end of the bargain, right? I would say that using industrial policy, the kind of government investment that I had talked about before, using industrial policy to address climate change rather than just using carbon taxes, that is actually also a pretty disruptive way to use power. And I think that this, it, it's also quite Rooseveltian, as in an FDR kind of style, way of using power. He did not shy away from that. Um, and I think this is the way of post-neoliberal policymaking that I hope and think and believe we will be heading toward.
2: Well, one of the other spaces where they have some of this power, and I think there's been a very big change in underlying assumptions in the democratic policy world is around antitrust. And depending on who you talk to, you will get different answers on what they should do with that power. But antitrust is, an is broadly speaking, an executive power. It doesn't go through Congress there is a growing view that industry concentration has become a major power problem in, in our economy and in our politics. Some people, I think, make antitrust and, and, and concentration the core of everything, and I'm not fully bought into that view, but, but I think the argument that it is a problem is very well supported at this point. I, I'm curious how you see the antitrust power in a Biden administration, if there are particular things you think they should do with it that haven't been done of late.
1: I absolutely do. And I think the number one way to push forward on an anti-monopoly, I I think of it as anti-monopoly, not just antitrust. Antitrust is a kind of narrowly legal way to think about using authority to curb the power of large corporations. Anti-monopoly, you know, there's a lot more means in addition to legal means that are available to you. But at any rate, I think that um, there is a lot that is available to a Biden administration to curb private power. I think mostly it's going to have to happen through uh, actually appointments of people uh, to the Federal Trade Commission, to the Department of Justice, particularly in the uh, antitrust division, the AAG for antitrust. And I think that one of the things that the Biden administration really needs to think about is what is the aggressive uh, sort of strategy that the Department of Justice and the FTC should use to actually prosecute cases. You can think about all of the public outcry against big tech right now, Facebook, Google, et cetera, Facebook, Google, Amazon, as kind of the tip of the spear on all of this. But there is a way to actually assertively contemplate a rulemaking strategy and a legal strategy that doesn't just sit back and wait for cases to come to you, but actually pushes forward to think through what are the biggest harms that companies are doing to workers and to consumers in the current American economy, and how would you really reverse that? But I think how all of that really can and should be done through the right appointments to those offices.
2: Is there any executive power that you think is going to be profound or pivotal in this administration that people don't think about? Uh, a, A space of authority that does not get attention, but that you're going to be watching closely or that you wish the Biden team would become more ambitious about their approach to?
1: Well, I don't know if it's about executive authority, you know, sort of classically defined, but I think it is incredibly because it's not like a single EO or something like that, a single executive order. But I think especially at this moment when we're seeing the Biden transition team appoint people to various offices, obviously things as powerful and public as like, you know, the Treasury secretary or folks who are like White House staff. I think paying attention to personnel is incredibly important. And I think it is absolutely critical that the people who are appointed to these jobs hold a kind of new economics understanding of power and of um, what is available in kind of new economic rulemaking and new economic thinking. And I think it's really important that that those people be diverse by race and gender. And I say that not just because I think it's important sort of for moral reasons or because I think it's important for reasons of kind of abstract fairness, but if a person who is a staff member at the National Economic Council has family members who have lost their jobs, lost their livelihoods, whose businesses have gone under, who themselves have contracted COVID. And all of that is just statistically much more likely if you are Black or if you are Latinx. If that's the kind of person who's also in the White House helping to make and guide policy, you will see different policies going through the pipeline and and ultimately becoming the law of the land. And so I think it's really important for substantive reasons and not just kind of abstract ethical reasons that we see a much more diverse and much more next generation, new generation set of policymakers.
2: I think that is a good place to come to a close. So always a final question here. What are three books you'd recommend to the audience that have influenced you?
1: I actually picked three books that all kind of take us back to the early neoliberal era. And all of them are set in California because uh, I'm a Californian and I like to think about the ways in which my home state, is currently the bluest of the blue, but also was the home of some of the earliest uh, neoliberal thinking and neoliberal politics. So my three books are, first, Suburban Warriors by Lisa McGurr. This is just a beautifully reported, meticulously written history that shows the ways in which neoliberal economic ideas were kind of braided into the lives of Women and men, but a lot of focus on women here in like Orange County cul de sacs in the 1960s and 1970s. You know, you see women holding bridge parties and organizing for Barry Goldwater and ultimately becoming part of the new evangelical churches like the Crystal Cathedral. And you see the ways in which economics and kind of everyday social interactions really come together. It's a great book. The second book I'm recommending is a book by Fred Turner called uh, From Counterculture to Cyberculture, Stuart Brand to the Whole Earth Network and the Rise of Digital Utopianism. And It's about, you know, early computer culture in Silicon Valley, 1970s, 1960s, 70s, 80s. And it reminds us, I love this because we've gotten so far away from this in Silicon Valley today, but it reminds us that computer culture was once seen as profoundly and radically democratic. And Turner has this idea, this kind of ecological metaphor for networked democracy that is utopian and is really quite beautiful. I don't think it turned out the way that uh, Stuart Brand might have wanted it to, but it's a great book. And then my last book is by my friend and colleague Manuel Pastor. It was came out just a couple of years ago, and it's called State of Resistance: What California's Dizzying Descent and Remarkable Resurgence Mean for California's future. And Pastor really tells the story about how California's exceedingly right-wing politics in the 1970s and 1980s, up through the 1990s, right with Pete Wilson, Governor Pete Wilson, who really uh, villainized immigrants. He Pastor tells the story of how this politics turns around when Black and brown leaders in California decide to take charge and not just organize and not just create outside movements, but actually run for office and take power. So they really created a new social compact in California, which is not perfect, believe me, but it's a lot different than California of the 1980s. So three books, all great.
2: Felicia Wong, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much, Ezra. Always great to talk with you.
2: Thank you to Felicia Wong for being here, to Roshia Karma for researching, Jeffrey Gell for producing the Ezra Kleinsch's Vox Media Podcast Production.